Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Sarah Bartlett. On this edition, we'll feature a celebration of Martin Gardner's life, glow-in-the-dark sharks, and an update on the oil spill. But first up, here's the news with Aaron Cook and Victoria Bond. <laughs> Scientists across the globe have long hunted for a vaccine against malaria, which is a disease that claims roughly one million lives each year. After decades of searching, the creation of a malaria vaccine is looking more and more likely. The first good piece of news relating to wiping out malaria came after UK-based pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline announced that it would take the unprecedented step in sharing its scientific data and laboratories to help fight the good fight against tropical disease in countries. At the same time, researchers in Australia said a group of proteins produced in the human immune system when affected with malaria could help lead to the creation of a malaria vaccine. According to the researchers, a successful vaccine would stimulate the body's defenses to stop the malaria parasite. The basis of the vaccine would be trying to speed up what the immune system does naturally in areas where malaria occurs. What the vaccine would aim to do is achieve that in a much more rapid process, rather than losing many people's lives and people experiencing a lot of illness before they develop an immunity. So this protein that's been discovered by Australian researchers would basically train up the body's immune system to recognize what malaria is and push off the disease, as people already do in highly um, malaria-dense spots around the world, but just do that faster without actually experiencing the burden of disease, which is generally seen. This is interesting because Africa carries about 70% of the number of worldwide cases of malaria, but only receives 3% of global healthcare resources. And what GSK, um, this UK company, is proposing to do is to help fund a, an amazing amount of money. Um, they're the world's third largest drug company, and they will offer to freely release 13,500 of its compounds via a website and also provide scientists with um, eight million in funding for research and labs in which they could find or develop a potential malarial vaccine. All this is very, very good news, um, especially because malaria is one of the most crippling diseases. And so far, little has been done to uh, develop a vaccine because there just frankly hasn't been any profitable market in it. But people need to remember that clinical experiments are still needed and a vaccine is still a long way away, maybe up to 10 years. Sharks glow in the dark. In open water, there's often no place to hide. Some sharks have overcome this problem by making themselves invisible to both prey and predators, according to a new study. Julian Clays describes this phenomenon in the current issue of the Journal of Experimental Marine Biology. He says that more than 10% of all known shark species are luminous, which means they can produce and emit light from their bodies. Clays and his colleagues chose to focus on one particular luminous shark, the velvet belly lantern shark. 
This shark's tumor originates from light-emitting organs called photophores from underneath its body, which effectively creates a glow from that region. Immediately after being caught, most of the sharks produced a spontaneous and long-lasting luminescence, occasionally lasting for over an hour. The spectrum of this light closely matched that of the shark's usual deep-water home. Interestingly, the sharks were able to adjust slightly their emitted light in response to external light changes, keeping always the same color as the ambient water. This ability suggests that they use both their eyes and a small gland in the brain to monitor information on light shining down from above. Like most sharks, the mouth of this species is on its underside, so the camouflage system allows the shark to grab its prey, such as krill or pearlfish, with invisible ease. The shark's lights may also turn on members of the opposite sex. They found, um, they found that some parts of the animal that shone brighter were at close range were the pelvic part contain- containing the sexual organs. It's, it's pretty interesting to see how one um, adaptation can be used both for intraspecies communication and interspecies predation. Desert locusts develop bigger brains when swarming due to mental challenges of living in a crowd, scientists have learned. The insects are famous for the biblical scale of their crop-stripping swarms, which can have devastating effects on livelihoods and economies. However, desert locusts often also adapt to solitary lifestyle, living alone and actively avoiding other members of their species. The phase of life the insects are in, that is, swarming or solitary, has a dramatic effect on their brains, according to some new research. Scientists working with colonies of swarming locusts converted some of the insects into loners by keeping them isolated for up to three generations. Comparing the size and shapes of the locusts' brains revealed extraordinary differences. Despite being smaller than solitary locusts, swarming locusts developed brains that were 30% larger. The differences were most visible in regions of the brain dedicated to specific tasks. In solitary locusts, part of the brain dealing with vision and smell were proportionally larger. The brain of swarming locusts, in contrast, were far more developed in regions associated with learning and processing complex information. In a nutshell, you need to be brainier if you want to make it in the pack. Brains geared for processing complex information would also be an advantage as swarming locusts move from place to place, searching for and assessing potential new food sources. Scientists at Germany's Ruhr University have managed to genetically modify fruit fly larvae, allowing them to smell blue light. The team genetically modified the larvae so that one of the olfactory neurons was sensitive to blue light, making it smell like bananas. The process works because all of the olfactory neurons of fruit fly are capable of producing proteins sensitive to light. So we've got a bit of an update on the Deepwater Horizon spill, which is uh, known to most people as the Gulf oil spill, which began on April 20th. Um, BP is the company responsible, and currently they're saying they're spilling between five and 100,000 barrels per day. Now, the exact flow rate is uncertain, as BP has refused to allow independent scientists to perform an accurate measurement of the degree of damage. Um, at 1 p.m., 
Wednesday, at the time of this recording, the oil giant began pumping 50,000 pounds of thick, viscous fluid, which was twice the density of water, into the site of the leak to try to slow the oil flow down. If all goes according to plan, the well could then be sealed with cement. This is called the top kill procedure. Scientists estimate that there's a 60 to 70% chance of success, but as it stands, it's they've been doing it They've been at it for maybe six hours, and the statement released by BP is that there are no significant events to report at this time. The top kill procedure has worked successfully on above-ground oil wells in the Middle East, but has never been tried a mile beneath the ocean surface, which is the situation in the Gulf at present. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space, which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific fact Well, of course, even scientific facts are not perfectly exact But they are as exact as it is humanly possible to make them at the time it's a scientific fact, a scientific fact. It has to be correct, it has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. Now, some people wash their hands or take vitamin C when they feel the colds and flus are coming on. But a new study shows that looking at sick people might actually be the best way to prevent getting sick. Mark Schaller, a psychologist at the University of British Columbia, hypothesised that seeing diseased-connoting cues promotes a more aggressive immune response in people. To test it, the scientists asked a group of people to watch a 10-minute slideshow of images of ill people, some suffering from chickenpox or sneezing or coughing. A different group of people watched a slideshow of images of people brandishing guns. The participants rated the pictures of gun-carrying thugs as more distressing than the pictures of sickly people. But the bodily reactions were much different. This was revealed in blood samples taken from the participants before and after viewing the slideshows. The researchers exposed the blood samples to a bacterial infection and then measured the amount of an immune substance that white blood cells produced called interleukin-6, or IL-6. People who saw the pictures of thugs with guns had white blood cells that increased their production of IL-6 by 6%. But those who saw the images of the infirmed had white blood cells that increased their production of IL-6 by 23%. 
The researchers don't know why this happened, but they speculate it's a survival mechanism. If you see a bunch of people around you who look sick, said Mark Schaller, that's a pretty good indicator that you're in imminent danger of infection, which means that this is one of those times when it'd be wise to allocate more of those precious bodily resources to mount an especially vigorous immunological defence. A new study published in the Journal of Social, Cognitive, and Effective Neuroscience may shed some light on what makes people shy. About 20% of people are born with a personality trait called sensory perception sensitivity that can manifest itself as the tendency to be inhibited or even neurotic. The trait can be seen in some children who are slow to warm up in a situation but eventually join in. They also need little punishment, cry easily, ask unusual questions, or have especially deep thoughts. These sensitive individuals pay more attention to detail and have more activity in certain regions of their brains when trying to process visual information than those who are not classified as highly sensitive. Individuals with this highly sensitive trait prefer to take longer times to make decisions. They're more conscientious. They need more time to themselves in order to reflect, and they are more easily bored with small talk. They're also more bothered by noise and crowd more affected by caffeine, and more easily startled, which suggests that the trait seems to confer sensitivity all around. The researchers first used an established questionnaire to separate the sensitive from the non-sensitive participants. Then, the 16 participants compared a photograph of a visual scene with a preceding scene, indicating whether or not the scene had changed. Scenes differed in whether the changes were obvious or subtle, and in how quickly they were presented. Meanwhile, the researchers scanned each participant's brains with fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. Sensitive people looked at the scenes with subtle differences for a longer period of time and showed significantly greater activation in brain areas involved in associating visual input with other input to the brain and visual attention. So these brain areas are not simply used for vision itself, but also for deeper processing of input. Now, they've come up with interesting ideas as to what the role in evolution could be of this trait. The sensitivity trait is found in over 100 other species, from fruit flies to fish and canines and primates, basically across the board. Biologists are beginning to agree that within one species there can be two equally successful personalities. So the sensitive type, which is always a minority, chooses to observe longer before acting, as if doing their exploring with their brains rather than their limbs. The other type tends to boldly go where no one has gone before. The sensitive individual strategy is not so advantageous when resources are plentiful, but it does come in handy when danger is present, and opportunities are similar and hard to choose between, and a clever approach is needed. Thank you.
You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SER.com, broadcast from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next up, Aaron Cook delivers a eulogy for the Mars Phoenix lander. Japan's Funeral March, played by the Edison Concert Band. In sure and certain hope that Mars contains water, we commend to the god of war our lander, whose name was Phoenix, and we abandon it forever. Mars to Mars, ashes to ashes, space dust to space dust. NASA has officially declared the Phoenix lander a goner after repeated attempts to contact the spacecraft were unsuccessful. Fook Lee, the manager of the Mars Exploration Program, said the Phoenix had succeeded in its investigations and outlasted its planned lifetime. The NASA Mars Odyssey orbiter has flown over the lander more than 200 times and been unable to detect a response. Images from NASA showed signs of severe ice damage to the lander's solar panels. In the three months after it landed in May 2008, the lander confirmed the existence of widespread patches of underground water ice and identified calcium carbonate which points to the existence of liquid water at some time in the past. Joining us for the funeral of Phoenix today is Professor Malcolm Walter, Director of the Australian Centre for Astrobiology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Professor Walter, thank you for coming on Diffusion. I'm very happy to do so. Well, now we've heard that Phoenix is dead, is this a sad day for astronomers and astrobiologists like yourself? No, I don't, I don't think so. It was entirely predicted. It wasn't expected to last through the, the Martian winter, so it's not surprising at all. And it did a lot when it was working, uh, so we, we don't need to be sad about it. What were the most significant findings of the Phoenix lander? Well, the most significant, well, there were two, really, I think, anyway. One of them was the first direct analysis of water, water ice, on Mars, even though it had been predicted and determined from orbiting instruments for a long time. This was the first analysis in situ, so that that was good. That was a a confirmation of previous interpretations. And the second, quite intriguing, was the possible observation of liquid water. And that was very surprising. And how was that liquid water observed? It was observed by the cameras on the on the lander on Phoenix. Droplet-like spots were observed on one of the legs of the lander, and they seemed to change shape with time, consistent with being liquid. There's no direct analysis of that, but the observations suggest that there is liquid water there, and that's very surprising because of the very low temperature and the lower atmospheric pressure on Mars, meaning that liquid pure water is not stable. Right, right, fantastic. Is there anything more to find out on Mars? What, what else do we 
do we want to find out about the red planet? It'd be interesting if you found life there, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that's a big question. There, there may well be living organisms there, and if there are, and if they can be shown to be or to have had a separate origin from organisms on Earth, then that would be a profound discovery. So do you think we should be sending humans to Mars to try to find that out? Uh, eventually, I think, but that's not likely to happen for some decades yet. A lot can be done with robotic spacecraft, but eventually, I think, we will send humans to Mars. Professor Walter, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to Diffusion today. You're very welcome. So, do you guys feel we should be spending, well, the Americans should be spending billions of dollars on space exploration these days? Well, it seems like it could be a good backup plan as we're quickly going through destroying this planet pretty thoroughly. A backup plan. Do you think Mars could be tilled and the waters could be, you know, extracted from the soil? Well, my personal opinion is we're really uh, throwing, throwing, throwing good money after bad um, but but that would be my opinion I really I really look at it that uh, there's so many things we could be spending our money on um, back on earth but I know that many will say and probably many of our listeners will ring in and uh, be able to mention many technolo technological advances that uh, we wouldn't have had unless uh, the space race had been going on so I think it's a dilemma that that really strikes us do we continue to spend all this money when so much of it could go towards decent research uh, that would be meaningful for us on Earth. Well, and I wonder how much of it comes down to curiosity versus practicality. You know, how much of how much of our exploration is um, is driven by a, a curiosity to know what's out there and what could be there, and also you know what could practically be used for colonization or for something in the future. Yeah, I, th I think um, part of the space age era what had a lot to do with politics course it was the the two big baddies the US versus the USSR and that's what drove a lot of the um, space colonization and dreams um, there isn't really that dichotomy left I, I don't really know what the role of space exploration is these days yeah and I, I wonder whether if we ever do send people to Mars it's going to be a case of more more ego than anything else because like Professor Walter said they can do a lot of the exploration they need with machines uh, and I think it'll be really scary if we send some people off in a spacecraft knowing that they're eventually going to die. It's going to be, be a really awful thing to watch for me personally. Yeah, ethically, is that is that really a decision that people are capable of making when they're 20 and they've got 40 years of space ahead of them? But aren't we all eventually going to die? <laughs> Why do we all want to be up there, up there? What is there to do or see up there, up there? Outer space is the place where we'll trace the future. 
there's a lot of who knows what away up there. Now that I think of it, why do we want to be up there? Because we're people, members of the human race. We thirst for knowledge, we, we want to know. And we do know that new frontiers and discoveries are waiting for new pioneers and scientists away up there. Outer space is the place where we'll trace the future. There's a lot of who knows what away. Last week marked the passing of Martin Gardner, polymath, puzzle master, and philosopher, who died on Sunday at the age of 95. Though he never formally studied math more complicated than calculus at the high school level, Gardner was perhaps best known for his interest in recreational mathematics. The series of math and logic puzzles he published in both books and magazine columns for decades. Beyond his skills at making science communication and learning fun, he has endeared himself to the science community by being a prominent skeptic during the height of New Age mumbo-jumbo, and one of the founding members of what is now the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. We at Diffusion would like to thank Martin Gardner for inspiring all of us and teaching us that science can be fun too. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond, Aaron Cook, and Sarah Bartlett. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SER Sydney. I'm Sarah Bartlett. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.